as I was uh, coming up here this morning, um, I was, uh, it was pointed out to me that uh, it was interesting that the title of my message, The Economics of Eternal Gain, was coming from the guy who's the church administrator. And I guess it, it made sense in, in a way. I didn't plan it that way. But this text, in addition to, to uh, that, uh, has really been in my life since uh, I, I became a believer. In fact, I remember um, 10th anniversary of the church, and the, 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 they did a number of things to acknowledge that moment. And one of the things across the street, there was a table and a paper tablecloth, and I remember everyone was invited to write down what their uh, life verse was. And, and, and I remember distinctly writing down Philippians 3, verse 10. So when I, I was given the opportunity to preach a second time, it was the text that came first to mind. Just as a matter of introduction, Paul's letter to the Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. He begins the letter in chapter one saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul is filled with love, hope, and joy over the Philippian church. It is the first church Paul founded in Europe during his second missionary journey, and according to Acts 16, the first convert was Lydia, a seller of purple cloth. But now writing this letter from prison in Rome, under the hand of Nero, his spiritual children exude the fruit of the gospel and his heart rejoices, despite his own circumstances. Every hardship fought, every indignity endured, every suffering embraced, every danger averted, has all been worth it knowing and hearing of all that God is doing among this church to the glory and praise of God. And like any parent, Paul watches cautiously, encouraging and exhorting this fledgling brood, seeking to guide them through the snares and traps of this life, praying with all passion that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. And so as Paul begins the third chapter, it is with an exhortation and a warning against false teachers, leading Paul into really the testimony of his own pursuit of Christ. Paul is going to evaluate his life before Christ, his life in Christ, and his future life with Christ. Paul is really saying, who are we? in Christ. He begins in verses one through three, 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul starts with an encouragement to the church. Rejoice in the Lord. It's an interesting phrase. And it causes us to reflect on the nature of joy. I had to chuckle when I heard Ron talking about joy and happiness last week. And in this text, the nature of our joy and the object of our rejoicing is relational. We rejoice in the Lord. This is much more than maintaining a joyful attitude. Someone might be very joyful and, and, and feel it is very important to approach life's difficulties with a positive attitude. Paul is talking about much more than this. Paul is emphasizing that our joy is found in a relationship. It is found in a relationship with Christ. And then he concludes verse 1 with this interesting phrase, rejoice in the Lord because it is safe for you. What does he mean it is safe for you? Well, the first verse that came to mind is Nehemiah 8.10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy in the Lord is inherently strengthening. Finding our joy in Christ rather than temporal circumstances of success or trial causes us to remain steadfast, unmoved, and unshaken. Paul is also connecting the safeguard of rejoicing to the danger of false teaching he's going to jump to in verse 2. Think of it this way. If you're not finding your joy in Christ, where will you find your joy? The problem is you will find your joy somewhere else. That's when we find ourselves in dangerous circumstances. There is no lack in the world of someone with some new twist on Christianity or some new system of supplement or, or some new system to supplement or supplant the simplicity of the gospel. Joy in Christ is a safeguard against those who would undermine your faith. Rejoice in the Lord. It is safe for you, Paul says. Let me press the point a little bit further. We do all go through periods of, of dryness. I think we can accept that. But if joy in the Lord seems foreign to you, ask him to give you wisdom why. Are, you pre are your present circumstances clouding your future hope in Christ? Is your confidence to endure standing on your own wisdom and capabilities rather than God's? Are the things of this world sweeter than the things of God? I can't help but think of Lucy and Charlie Brown. What did, what did she say? The, um, the psychologist and Lucy, and he said all of his problems, and she said, it's pandemonium or whatever he said. I can't remember that one, but. So we're throwing them all out there. The point is, joy is the experience God wants us to experience and says we should have it in Christ. 
Ask him for it. But be prepared to respond in obedience to the Spirit's leading. Well, from this encouragement, Paul goes on in verse 2 to a warning. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And I have to admit, uh, when I first was reading through Philippians, um, that many of these verses, they seem disconnected. But it is amazing how Paul ties these all together into a single ribbon. And before we think Paul is resorting to childish name-calling, these commands should be interpreted as a warning to beware of something hazardous and to pay close attention. He is warning us against false teachers. Paul calls the first characteristic of false teachers dogs. Look out for the dogs. Sounds a little harsh. Now, the first thing we've got to understand is dogs in Paul's day are not what we think of. They were unclean. They were scavengers. They fed off of anything found, including dead animals, corpses. They were diseased. These were not pets. This was not Fluffy, who had a bi-monthly appointment at the groomer. <laughs> right? But more than that... Paul is touching on a cultural ter term the Jews used when speaking about impure Gentiles. And Paul is clearly referring to those who were posing as Christian teachers that placed their emphasis on belonging to the Jewish people. These were the Judaizers who had infiltrated the church, claiming the name of Christ, but demanded that the Mosaic system of laws sacrifices and festivals still be observed to be acceptable to God. Paul calls the Judaizers by their own favorite title for impure Gentiles. Watch out for those dogs. The second characteristic Paul speaks of is look out for the evildoers. It's really an ironic twist Paul places on the Judaizers who consider themselves servants of righteousness. They're going to make things right in the church. But their emphasis on the works of the law turns into a self-reliance that obscures the need for salvation in Christ. Their work to convert Gentile Christians to Judaism by requiring circumcision harms Christians by misleading them to supplement faith in Christ with works of the law. Consider this, John 3.16, it's a verse we all know it very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the pure gospel. It is beautiful. In so many few words, it expresses God's love for us and desire to save us from ourselves. The Judaizers say, yeah, not good enough. They turn God's greatest gift into a trifle. Look out for the evildoers, Paul says. Well, Paul calls the third characteristic of false teachers those who mutilate the flesh. This is a curious quality. 
Literally translated, it could say, look out for the mutilators. Well, why does Paul call them the mutilators? The term mutilation is a sarcastic reference to the significance they are placing on circumcision, which has no more value than mutilation if it replaces faith in Christ as the basis of belonging to the people of God. The Old Testament from the beginning taught that circumcision as an outward sign has no value unless it is a sign of a spiritual reality within, a submissive obedience to the will and word of God. Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul concludes the same as he reflects on the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer in Romans chapter 2 saying, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the law. Paul's warning is as relevant today as it was in his own day and applies to all ministers who draw people away from faith in Christ by insisting on the primary importance of religious rituals. Without Christ, without faith in Christ and the inner work of the spirit, even the most sacred rite is merely physical, a merely physical act and a meaningless performance with no spiritual value. And that includes our participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper. It must re reflect an inner reality of the work of the Spirit. Well, verse 3, Paul goes from detailing distinguishing characteristics of false teachers to really giving us distinguishing characteristics of true believers. Leading off of, well, reading verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In verse two, Paul shows us three, excuse me, true, true believers, Paul says, first of all, Worship by the Spirit of God. The, the, the first quality of a genuine believer is a heart that overflows with worship. The origin of true worship is generated by the Holy Spirit within us. It involves adoration and praise to God and transcends outward rituals and ceremonies. And we should really ask ourselves, do I have a heart of worship? Do I avoid the worship singing portion of the service by coming in a little late just to catch the meat of the service? Well, true worship is based on the truths of salvation revealed in scriptures. In the Gospel of John, Jesus had a really interesting uh, interaction with a Samaritan woman at the well and after gently pointing out sin in her life, she does what most of us would do. She changes the subject and starts talking about whether we should worship on this mountain or we should worship on that mountain. What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus responds to her in a very interesting way. 
He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Folks, we do not worship a God of our own making. And true worship is not determined by the location it occurs. But rather we worship God, the God revealed in scriptures. Truth produces true worship. And true worship is revealed in the characteristics of true worshipers. True worshipers love God. Though our love will never be perfect in this world, it is always there. True worshipers find their source of joy and delight in God. They heed David's exhortation, delight yourself in the Lord. The contemplation of God's glory and majesty and what he has done in our lives is our supreme joy and delight. True worshipers also have a confident trust in God that produces peace. That peace is based not on their own circumstances, but on their relationship with God. By the way, do you know the solution to fear and worry? It begins with worship. In worship, we acknowledge who God is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. God is glorified in our worship, and our fears and anxiety become small and insignificant. True worshipers are those who worship God from the heart in obedience to his word. Psalm 95, 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Did you know we are commanded to worship God? I'm not saying we should fake it or pretend. But if the bent of your heart is not toward worship of God, repent. Ask him for forgiveness and eyes that see his glory and his goodness and give you a true heart of worship. Well, Paul goes on. True believers not only worship God in the spirit, true believers glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in something is to rejoice in it. And here, you know, you probably expect me to break into some example about a football team or this or that. I have to admit to you, I just, I just don't watch sports. Well, no, F1 racing. I do watch F1 racing. So I guess I, I cheered those guys on. But we all experience that uh, earthly sort of glory when the Olympics come around. In fact, if you really listen, the Olympic commentators, they use the word glory continually. You know, that guy on the, po on the podium, he, he is experiencing the glory of the gold. So we understand it well in our culture. But Romans 5.2 says, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. To glory in something is to give all credit to it. 
Paul says to the Corinthian church, but by grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And to glory in something is to boast in it. Romans 15, 17. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. True believers glory in Christ Jesus. Finally, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh, Paul refers to, represents man's fallen, unredeemed humanness, you could say. All we are in our own capacities apart from God. And Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. Paul had a clear lack of confidence in the flesh. In Romans seven eighteen, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can you identify with that sense of futility? See, all of us have a basic desire to do what is right. God has given us a conscience, praise God. Even if it is from bad motives, we want to do it. But to live a righteous life by will or determination will always fail. Contrast this with Paul's later statement in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His confidence is not in the flesh, his confidence in Christ who will strengthen him. Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, having defined the distinguishing characteristics of believers, trusting in Christ through faith rather than confidence in their flesh, Paul anticipates the confident claims of the self-righteous and in the next few verses offers his own resume of all he considered gain or the value in his life before Christ. So again, concluding in verse 3, Paul says, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Paul leads into verse 4 where he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Put another way, Paul is saying, if, there, if ever there was someone worthy of putting confidence in their abilities and their accomplishments, I'm your guy. Paul's resume is impressive. And it's worth defining a little bit, especially in our modern years. Circumcised on the eighth day. This meant that Paul went through the defining rite of Judaism in the strictest requirements. 
on the eighth day. Not the seventh, not the ninth, on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. See, there were many Gentile converts to Judaism, but Paul was a Jew by birth, a member of God's chosen people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was not only one of God's chosen people, he was born into the most noble of tribes, Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Unlike many Jews of the diaspora or the dispersion, Paul had not been assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture. He had not been what was considered Hellenized. He still spoke Hebrew, and he still lived his life as a traditional Jew. And fifth, he says, as to the law of Pharisee. When it came to the law, he wasn't just an observant Jew. He, like his father before him, belonged to the strictest of all Jewish sects, the Pharisees, who lived to know, interpret, guard, and obey God's law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. No one was more zealous than Paul. His zeal drove him to pursue Christians all the way in Damascus, Syria, 150 miles away, so that he could throw them in jail and potentially have them executed. Paul was a true believer. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. And Paul was not saying he was sinless. But by all outward appearances, Paul was to the people who knew him, a model Jew, who lived by the Jewish law. Paul accredited all this to his personal ledger. He considered himself rich in spiritual capital. But he came to find that salvation is not by ritual. It is not by race. It is not by rank. It is not by tradition. It is not by religion. It is not by sincerity. And it is not by legalistic righteousness. It is through Christ. So Paul came to understand to count all loss for Christ. Verse 7 and 8 says, But whatever gain I had, all this, all these achievements, everything that represented the depth of who I was, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What Paul had once cherished as gain in his life was moved to the lost column. And not just loss, he says rubbish. The word means refuse or dung. Paul is considering all that that he considered essential to righteousness as filth compared to knowing Christ. This change for Paul wasn't just that he, he looked at his previous life and its value, values philosophically differently now. This wasn't just a mental change. This change would cost him much, deeply and personally. So you sort of have to uh, interpolate this. But I think it's accurate. 
when you see, as he counted his loss, everything previously gained, that would include his national identity. Think of all he, he carried in that, how important it was in his previous life. Now, he was scorned, outcast. He was considered a proselyte of a heretic Jewish sect. All of his achievements. Now, they mean nothing to those who admired him and sought to be like him. His titles, stripped away by those who considered him a traitor and a backstabber. And his own righteousness through the law, well, that's obviously gone. Counting his loss, all that he once thought righteousness through the law achieved. And in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So you can really look at this as the first part of verse 8. He is saying everything previously gained is loss. And the second part of verse 8, he is saying everything potentially gained is lost. I'm counting it all lost now and into the future. Well, what, what, would, you, what would you count as loss that's, that's potentially gained? Think of what we do, our investment in, in, uh, in, in education, in uh, status, in working up the ladder, uh, building a name. These things aren't static. These things are meant to increase our power, to increase our influence, to increase our res- the, the respect that is given to us, to increase really our self-righteousness. And Paul counted it all loss to gain Christ. He also counted as loss everything painful to lose. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul lost every comfort. He probably lived a pretty good life. He was a respected religious leader of of the highest order. These are the guys that really set the rules for everybody. And, uh, and, and, And he earned considerable deference. And Paul counted it loss. And to just know how deeply that loss is, listen to this from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is explaining all that he has experienced serving Christ. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposure. Paul suffered the loss of a lot. He suffered the loss of friendship. I imagine everybody abandoned him from that previous life. Every friendship, every family member had to turn their back on him. 
All this, and yet Paul proclaims in verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Well, what is it to gain Christ? In verses 9 through 11, Paul says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What did Paul gain in Christ? He gained the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What did Paul gain in Christ? He gained the knowledge of Christ. The word here, gnosko, means to know experimentally or experientially by personal involvement. The surpassing knowledge of Christ that Paul describes here is far more than intellectual knowledge about the facts of Christ. John, Jesus in uh, John's gospel, chapter 10, says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And in chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What did Paul gain in Christ? He gained the power of Christ. Paul knows now there is no power in the flesh. There is no power in the law, particularly over sin and death. But because he knew Christ, and had his righteousness imputed to himself, Paul had been given the Holy Spirit and the same spiritual power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is awesome to consider, is it not? The greatest display of Christ's power was the resurrection. It revealed his absolute power over both, both the physical and spiritual realms. Paul experienced Christ's resurrection power in two ways. It saved him and it sanctified him. He says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul also gained in Christ the sufferings of Christ. There is no greater bond than between those who suffer together. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Paul gained the resurrection from the dead. Paul tells us that Jesus not only saves us, sanctifies us, changing us into the image of Christ, but he glorifies us. It's not in my text, but I'm going to jump ahead. to Philippians chapter 4. Verses 20 and 21. Nope. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul put it another way to the Corinthian church. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now Paul experiences living all through Christ. Verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained it, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does it look like to live all through Christ? Well, first... We'll be humbled by God's continuing work in us. Paul says, not that I already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He, he understands his weaknesses, but God is working. In fact, he says at the beginning of the letter to the church, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, we'll forsake the could-haves, would-haves. There will be no regret. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. He's talking about the glory days. Paul says, forget them. Thirdly, we'll pursue God's perfect desire for us. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I don't know what that is, but I can't wait. Fourthly, we'll be motivated by the goal of an eternal prize. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. All the earthly hopes and dreams wither and fade in the light of the glory of all God has prepared for those who love him. And finally, we will not settle for anything less than God's highest calling for us in Christ. But reach for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, I didn't choose this verse for this reason, but as I started reading it, I thought, this is an outstanding text for the new year. And when Darren was sharing that during worship, I thought, amen, brother. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Glory to God. If you are a follower of Christ, pray that this year God would make this a reality like no other. If you are not a follower of Christ, my prayer is that you would come to see Jesus so glorious, so beautiful, that all you count as gain in this life becomes lost to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible tells us our condition is desperate. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The consequences are dire. For the wages of sin are death. But God's grace is abundant in Christ. Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Paul gives us a wonderful promise saying in Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. My prayer is that you will call on the name of the Lord today and every day thereafter. Amen. Father God, thank you for this letter to the Philippians. Thank you for the reminder. This is a, a, not just an apostle, but a pastor sharing his heart with his congregation. 
and his hopes for them and the promises of God. Father, as we enter a new year, may this be our cry. May we count all as loss for the sake of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.